Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Maria Konnikova returns to Little Atoms to talk about her latest book, The Confidence Game, the psychology of the con, and why we fall for it every time. Maria Konnikova was born in Moscow and grew up in the United States. Her first book, Mastermind, was a New York Times bestseller. She's a contributing writer for The New Yorker, where she writes a regular column with a focus on psychology and culture. And her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Scientific American Mind, and The Smithsonian, amongst numerous other publications. Maria's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Confidence Game, The Psychology of the Con, and Why We Fall for It Every Time. Maria, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. Let's talk about why you wanted to write a book about cons. As you mentioned in that subtitle, Why We Fall for It Every Time. So have you ever been the victim of a con merchant? Well, um, as I found out the more I research the book, if I have, there's a very good chance that I don't know it. I realize that a lot of incredibly successful cons are so good that they fool you into thinking it wasn't a con at all. We're so good at kind of self-rationalizing, and we, no one wants to think that they've fallen victim to a con. So we'll explain it away. We'll say, oh, it was just bad luck. Or, you know, oh, you know, that wonderful person I met online really did have a medical emergency, and that's why, you know, that's why whatever it needed to happen didn't happen. So we have very good ways of rationalizing away. So do I think that I've been a victim of giving money to someone who was actually conning me? Probably. Do I want to know about it? Probably not, because it makes me feel better to think that everyone is honest and that I wasn't part of any you know, sinister plan, that I was actually just helping someone out and that they were going to do exactly what they told me they were going to do. And just to elaborate on that, I mean, we'll talk later on about who are the people, who are you know, the con people, what sort of person does it. But the statistics on that are obviously quite shaky because, first of all, as you've just suggested, people don't like to admit mm-hmm. if they have fallen for a con. But also, if they're really good at it, we don't know anyway. 
Yes, yes. So statistics are really terrible. We honestly have no idea how many con artists are out there, how many cons have been perpetrated. We don't even know. Um, a lot of people wonder, you know, what's the proportion of men versus women con artists? The answer to all of these is we don't have a clue. And as you as you correctly suggest, some of it is reputational. You know, people do not want to tell others because it makes them it makes them seem weak. It makes them their reputation somehow tarnished or so they think. But the other part of it is that a lot of times we really honestly do not realize that we've been conned. I mean, some of the people that I write about in the book insisted that they weren't conned even after the con came to light. You know, there are people who paid for the defense of the con artist who'd taken their money, who ended up giving more money for the legal defense because they thought that they were wronged by the, I mean, the con artists. So that just goes to show how strong our need to believe and to continue to believe is that we will disregard even black and white evidence that's being placed right in front of us. And indeed, sometimes people go back to be conned again. Yes, there are multiple stories of people who fell for the exact same con, not once, but twice, and sometimes even more. There's a very funny story um, of this con artist duo who had um, ripped someone off at a basically a wire fraud. That's a very old type of fraud, and it was a more modern version where you say that you have an in at the Western Union Telegraph, and you can get race results a fraction of a second before anyone else, and so you'll always know the winner. So they had conned someone and taken a lot of his money, and then they were walking down the street in a totally different state and saw the same guy, and he started running towards them, and they thought, oh, no, we're screwed. He's going to turn us into the police. And so they started getting away, and he was running faster and faster, he said, wait, wait. So finally they stop and it ends up he wants to play again because he thought that it was just bad luck that they lost the last time around. So that just goes to show, you know, people often do not realize that they've been conned and because they dismiss it as bad luck, well, bad luck can change, right? If it was just bad luck, then why won't this time be better? Why won't I be luckier? And so they want to play again. Now, I want us to go on to talk about what type of people are susceptible to the con artist. But before we do that generally, one type of person who is particularly susceptible to being conned by the con artist is the con artist. (laughs) That is absolutely right. And that is something that I wasn't expecting to find. But that actually makes sense when you think about it. Because one of the things that makes us susceptible is that we don't think we're susceptible. And so we become a little bit blasé. We're overconfident. We think we can spot deception. And so when, you know, someone, when we think that someone is trustworthy, we won't see anything wrong with it because we trust our instincts. And so we become a little too confident and we become easier to fool. And con artists end up making the best marks because as far as the spectrum of overconfidence goes, they're at the extreme end because they do this every day. They do this for a living. And so they think, you know, I know all the tricks. There is no possible way that anyone can fool me. And yet you get them falling for things that seem completely crazy. There's one man who I write about in the book, Oscar Hartzell, who convinced hundreds and 
thousands of people over a decade that Sir Francis Drake, when he died, had left this vast treasure that had never been given to anyone because his only living heir was illegitimate because, as everyone knows, Sir Francis Drake had an illegitimate son with Queen Elizabeth. Um, so this story seems totally preposterous, but people believe it because he, you know, he has this very elaborate tale. He has a very good way of talking about it. He's even made up some paperwork to back it up. Fast forward to the 20th century, and now the treasure is almost ready to be distributed, but there's still some red tape in England because people don't want this secret to get out, and frankly, the treasury would rather keep the treasure. And so if you just give a little bit of money, you will end up getting your money back multiple fold because can you imagine how much that treasure is worth today? People fall for this. He ends up making millions of dollars. He's in London, even though he's from the United States because he needs to be closer to the Drake fortune. He sees an article in a newspaper advertising a seance with a medium and something about it draws his eye. He goes, he starts believing that this is the real deal. Now he's savvy. He's a con artist. He knows that there's no such thing as psychics, but he thinks this one is the exception. He has found the only true psychic, and she proceeds to milk him for tens of thousands of dollars over a period of years because she's incredibly good at what she does. Let's go back to the general population, and so it's a leading question really, but what type of people typically are conned? Well, um, the thing that I found out was that there's no uniting profile in terms of personality or demographics. So it's not like, you know, if you're better educated, you're more likely to fall for a con, or if you're male, or if you're female, or if you're more honest or more dishonest, nothing like that. In fact, some of the things that are protective against one type of con might make you more vulnerable to another. So let me give you an example of education lottery fraud, you're much more likely to fall for if you don't have higher education, if you never graduated high school, never went to college. However, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to fall for an investment con. And so the same thing that will protect you against one makes you vulnerable to another. But the one thing that seems to make anyone more vulnerable is where you happen to find yourself at this point in your life. What I mean by that is that life changes that destabilize you somehow, that change your frame of reference, that make kind of your world more uncertain, um, that play around with what you thought was true. Those types of moments leave us emotionally vulnerable, and those are really wonderful points of attack for the con artist because when we're vulnerable emotionally, that's when we want to hope. That's when we're much more likely to believe the stories that the con artist tell us. So this can be negative change. It often is, you know, divorce, death, loss of a job. It can also be positive change. So you get married, um, there's a new baby, you've got a new job, and so you move across the country or you move abroad. In all of these cases, your frame of reference completely shifts and you become, you know, you start craving stability and certainty. And that's what the con artist ends up selling you. Um, hope that everything will work out, stability where there is none, a sense of right and wrong and black and white where really you're just floating in shades of gray. Well, let's talk about an example of that. And I mean, obviously, when you're talking about a, a sort of enhanced emotional state, people will probably think of like bereavement and we'll no doubt we'll talk about we're definitely going to talk about some examples of psychics and things later on. But let's talk about a quite innocuous one of a good occasion, which is this. You talk about this woman who's a um, professional wedding imposter. 
<laughs> Aunt Nancy. She's she's one of my favorites. So this woman, well, let's uh, let's rewind. Mr. and Mrs. Blau place a wedding announcement or an engagement announcement rather in the New York Times. And they say, oh, we're very proud to announce the engagement of our son to, you know, Molly Smith. I don't remember what her name is. To Molly Smith of California. Wonderful announcement runs. Everyone's happy. Mr. and Mrs. Blau get a phone call. And on the phone is a woman who says, hi, I'm Molly's aunt Nancy, and I just so happen to be visiting your town today. I'd love to meet since we're future family. You know, let's get together. This is going to be wonderful. Of course, the Mrs. Bob says, oh, yes, yes, of course. She's, she's a little bit miffed, you know, why didn't her son tell her? But she goes and picks up Aunt Nancy at the station, takes her out to a beautiful lunch, you know, introduces her to the family. Then it, in the evening, drives her back to the station. Aunt Nancy, unfortunately, doesn't have any cash, just traveler's checks, and so she can't pay for her ticket. And so she, she gets money not just for the ticket, but for the hotel for the next night, you know, a little extra cash, because she's Aunt Nancy. She's going to obviously wire it back the moment that she gets into New York City. And Aunt Nancy leaves, everyone's happy. Mrs. Blau calls her son and says, why didn't you and Molly tell me that Aunt Nancy was coming to visit? And he says, I don't know who Aunt Nancy was, is, let me ask Molly. So he asks Molly, he says, hey, why, who's Aunt Nancy? Why didn't you say that she was coming to visit? And Molly says, you know, I don't know, let me call my mom. So she calls her mom. Her mom says, I don't know, let me call my mom. So she calls her mom. Ends up Aunt Nancy does not exist. Aunt Nancy is a professional wedding imposter. She reads announcements, figures stuff out about the family, and then goes from family to family, crisscrossing the country, in ingratiating herself into weddings and into wedding parties and into just family circumstances, getting lots of lovely meals and a little bit of cash on the side. This is her job. And, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen the movie Wedding Crashers, I thought, hey, you know, there's some real life inspiration for that. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. We've pretty much established that anybody at any time can be susceptible to certain types of cons. But most people would not think that. And in fact, a lot of people would get quite indignant if you suggested that they were vulnerable. Absolutely. So the day after my book came out, I got some really nasty emails and some one-star reviews. I know never read your Amazon reviews, right? Some very bad reviews from people who hadn't read the book and said as much, but said the title is terrible because you say why we fall for it, but I would never fall for it. So you are, you're just completely wrong. And they, they just, they said, I'm not going to read this book. You're wrong and you're terrible because that is really, for a lot of people, that's the first instinct. They say, I could never be so dumb. I mean, you have to be so stupid to fall for any of these cons. And, you know, the media doesn't really help because we have all of these negative portrayals or victims of con artists. We say, you know, you can't fool an honest man or, oh, it must have been greedy. It's their own fault. We really victim blame in this particular situation. I think we do that to make ourselves feel better because if you have to be dishonest or greedy or something like that, then you can kind of pat yourself on the back and reassure yourself and say, oh, well, that would never happen to me because I'm honest and I'm, you know, I'm not greedy. I'm a good person. So, of course, I will see this coming. I'm a very fine judge of character. We all want to think ourselves as fine judges of character. No one wants to say, you know, I don't actually know if someone's a good person or not. I'm not really good at reading people. That's just 
just not something that people want to admit. And so it's a really, you know, people aren't just skeptical. They become indignant. They become resistant. They can become quite nasty when you imply that they are potential victims. Now, of course, this all changes after they've been conned, but beforehand, um, they just don't think it's at all possible. Surely, though, somebody who lives, you know, if you live in some big, sophisticated city like New York, for instance, you wouldn't be likely to be conned. <laughs> are you setting me up for the David Moore quote? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so David Moore wrote this amazing book in 1940 called The Big Con. Um, if you have not read it, you absolutely should. It's just it's a brilliant account of the streets and kind of the life of the con artist. He was a linguist and studying their language. And he has this wonderful quote. Um, from one of the grifters with whom he spent time, which says, New Yorkers are the best suckers. They are so sophisticated that they love to be taken. So New Yorkers are really the best marks because they think they themselves so incredibly worldly, so urbane, so just knowledgeable that they end up being the most vulnerable people and the best marks for con artists. I mean, three-card Monty still exists on the streets of Manhattan. And people who know exactly what three-card Monty is end up playing it because they think they can beat the con artist. Should I explain briefly what Three Card Monty is? Sure, yes, please. So Three Card Monty is just this very simple game. Someone's sitting on the street, there are three cards um, face down, and you have to follow the lady. So if you can guess which one is the lady or the queen, you end up doubling your money. And this is a con. Um, you cannot win because these people are brilliant sleight-of-hand artists, um, and they're also incredibly good at drama creation, which is what a lot of what con artists do. And yet they can trick people who know exactly what the game is into playing because the people think that they can beat the con artists at their own game. So someone might whisper in your ear, and this someone, by the way, is in on the con, will say, hey, you know, you, you see that the queen actually has a little marking or the card is creased or whatever it is. You can always spot where it is. And so you think you'll know. And so you'll end up betting money because you think you're smarter and you'll obviously lose the money because you're not smarter. But that sense that maybe you can actually beat it is incredibly strong. I've spoken to multiple people who knew exactly what that game was, who ended up losing a lot of money. So let's talk about what's going on here then, like from a sort of psychology perspective. First of all, we've got this idea that, you know, people don't like to admit that they're being conned when it's going on. There's also some sort of cognitive dissonance going on. The people don't want to admit that it's going on and will even go back. And I guess also this idea of people just saying, you know, like, oh, no, I, that definitely never would happen to me. I mean, why do we fall for it? Well, I think we fall for it for a few different reasons. One of them is that we really are hardwired to trust. This was actually quite um, surprising to me as I did the research because at first I thought that you know the evolutionarily beneficial way to go would be to distrust people to kind of be a little bit skeptical because that will keep you alive you know you're don't want to get food from just anyone you meet you don't want to be poisoned but it would actually be helpful but it ends up that trust is the more beneficial strategy and when you look at it it starts to make a lot of sense because you need to 
survive, you need to have protection, you need to build communities, you need to forge relationships. In order for societies to grow, you need to trust one another to create institutions. And so you end up finding that societies with higher levels of something called generalized trust, and that's just this generalized willingness to trust other people, that they do better economically, that they have better social institutions, they're more advanced than societies where trust is lower, and that on an individual level, we have people who are more intelligent, the more trusting they are. The more trusting you are, the better your life outcomes, the healthier you're going to be, the happier you're going to be. And all of these are correlations, obviously, not causal. But they show something, I think, quite fundamental about the benefit of trust. So that's one part of it. We usually just trust people. And most people are not out to get us, so that ends up being a strategy that works the vast majority of the time. And I think the other part of it is that we're all incredibly hopeful. We're hopeful about ourselves. So that means we're a little bit too optimistic about ourselves. We think we're all exceptional. We're all above average in all good things and below average in all bad things. But we're also hopeful about the future, that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And that sort of optimistic bias, that optimism illusion, is what enables us to kind of to get through life and to strive and to succeed and to do all sorts of great things. Because otherwise, you know, if tomorrow's going to be worse and if everything is going to be worse, then why bother? You know, what's the point? And indeed, you see that the only subset of the population that lacks this optimism and positivity bias are the clinically depressed. So those are the people who don't think that there's a point in tomorrow. And that, I think, is very, very telling because it shows just how incredibly adaptive and how protective it is to be hopeful and to be optimistic. But that's the very thing that con artists take advantage of because they sell us hope. They actually tell us the story that we already want to believe is true. And that is the way that they're able to accomplish what they accomplish. And we believe them because we actually want to believe the reality that they're telling us. They tell us exactly what we want to hear about life and about ourselves. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. I'm talking to Maria Konnikova, and we're talking about her book, The Confidence Game, The Psychology of the Con, and Why We Fall for It Every Time. And Maria, we've been talking about who gets conned. And we've established that there's not really any obvious category of people. Anybody can fall for it. But what about the con artists? Let's talk about who they are. Well, um, I'll start by saying that con artists are all different and so what I'm about to say certainly does not apply to all of them. That said, there are certain characteristics that con artists seem to possess, at least most of them, and that's the so-called dark triad of traits. And they don't have to have all three of them. It could be one, two, or all three. The first one is actually the most rare among con artists, and that's psychopathy. Um, So that's a lack of empathy. You don't feel guilt or remorse for your victims. You don't process emotions the way that other people do. And so for you, you know, this is no big deal. You can play with life or 
this, you can ruin people's lives. None of this matters. You can really rationalize it to yourself because to you, you know, you're not actually feeling any sort of emotional rapport with your victims. You remain very cold, very rational, very logical, very calculating. The second part, which is much more common, I would say the second two probably most con artists possess, um, the second one is narcissism. And that's an overblown ego and also the entitlement that that comes with. So I talk about this one con artist, uh, Ferdinand Waldo Damara, who pretended to be all sorts of things, a doctor, a professor, a prison warden, an engineer, all sorts of things. For all of these things, he stole credentials. So he actually, he'd never finished high school, but he stole other people's degrees. And his rationalization was that I am smarter than other people with PhDs or MDs or what have you, so I deserve it more, so I'm just going to take it. Why in the world should I work for it? I'm already smarter. So that's the sort of sense of entitlement that narcissism brings with it. And the final thing, which I think you basically have to have if you're a con artist, is Machiavellianism. Those are those soft skills of persuasion that were made famous by Machiavelli's ideal prince. So you're able to manipulate people, but they have no idea that you're manipulating them. They think that it's all coming from them. So it's this very soft touch. It's not the sleazy salesman who you're saying, oh, you're trying to upsell me. That's not a con artist. Machiavellianism is making you think that this is your idea. That's what con is all about. I don't take your confidence. You give it to me willingly. You give me your trust. You give me everything I ask for. I'm not actually taking anything. Machiavellianism makes that possible. You mentioned Damara, Ferdinand Waldo Damara, the con man who, as you said, has like a colourful career in lots of ways. But I, I just want to go back to him for a moment. Tell us the story particularly of, of him in the, um, in the Navy in the Korean War, which is just, just unbelievable. It really is. So we're back in the Korean War in 1951, and the Royal Canadian Navy has a shortage of doctors because not many people really want to be shipped out to Korea in the middle of a war. And Demara, at this stage, decides, hey, I can be a doctor. So he steals the credentials of a certain Dr. Sear. He'd had them on the ready because he's one of those people who always has multiple credentials ready to use. He presents them. The Navy is thrilled that such a esteemed surgeon wants to be part of the Navy. So right away, they give him an assignment. He's assigned to be the surgeon aboard a ship that's heading out to North Korea. And out they sail. He is the only medical doctor on board. And as I think I mentioned before, he does not have a high school education. He has two things with him. He has a medical textbook. And also before they set sail, he'd convinced another doctor, an actual doctor, to write a field guide for the troops. He said, you know, you're such a brilliant doctor. I can learn so much from you. Don't you think it would be a great idea to put together a little primer just in case, you know, something happens on the battlefield and I'm not there right away to fix it so that the soldiers know what to do. And the doctor is very flattered. He writes this guide for the troops, which is really for Damara. And so off he sails. They reach Korea. And because it's a war, people get hurt. And all of a sudden, up comes this boat. And on the boat, are bodies of people who've been in an ambush, and these are Korean soldiers, and they're incredibly badly wounded. And at this point, if you are at all sane, you say, you know, the jig is up. I'm not actually a doctor. We need to get a real doctor to look at these people. Tomorrow, that's not what he does. He decides 
but he's a doctor, goddammit, and he's going to perform surgery. So he starts cutting these people open. He starts actually performing surgery aboard a moving ship on the high seas, never having not only performed surgery, but seen an anatomy textbook in his life. And somehow he doesn't kill anyone. So nobody dies on the operating table. And I'm saying on the operating table is because these are Korean soldiers. So after the surgeries, they leave. So we don't actually know what the long-term outcome for them was, but no one dies. And people say tomorrow, oh, he's, he's brilliant. Um, he saved these Korean soldiers and he didn't even have to because they were Koreans. And all of these dispatches start covering Canada because DeMar says, oh, yes, of course, you can write about me. You know, I'm the brilliant Dr. Sear. And the real Dr. Sear at that point sees it and says, hey, what's going on? I'm not in Korea. And so that is how DeMar is unmasked. But that's not the end of the story. First of all, the captain of the ship doesn't believe it. He thinks that the real Sear is the imposter because DeMar was so convincing and so good that he still values him and thinks that he's the real doctor. Finally, they get it sorted that DeMar is the imposter, the Navy doesn't press charges. It just quietly dismisses him and asks him not to talk about it. So it actually does exactly what he would want them to do, which is hush the whole thing up so that people don't find out about it because its reputation would be so incredibly damaged if people were to find out that they had a fake doctor who was responsible for the lives of very real soldiers. And so tomorrow leaves, goes to the United States, and promptly reenlists in the Navy, in the U.S. Navy this time under a different name. And his story continues. And what, one of the reasons we know about this is because eventually somebody writes a book about him. And there's this weird ongoing relationship between Fred and the author of this book, who is basically... I guess, sort of willingly being conned by him to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so Robert Crichton, or Bob, as, as uh, people knew him, was really taken in by Damara. And I think that he probably understood what was going on, but on another level, he didn't. And let me let me tell you why I think he didn't on another level. So there's this moment where you know he's following him he knows that he's dealing with the great imposter he knows everything that's been happening and his wife at the time is pregnant and so Damara somehow convinces him that it would be a great idea if Judy Crichton's wife fires her obstetrician and instead uses Damara as her doctor and so taken in is Crichton by Damara that he actually says okay and goes to talk to Judy. Luckily, Judy at this point has not met Damara. And so she says, are you out of your mind? This guy has not finished high school and you want him to deliver our child. So that doesn't end up happening. And yet the fact that Crichton could actually propose this to his wife makes it clear just how much he was taken in. And this continues, by the way, for decades. Long after the book is published, we have Damara hitting Crichton up for money, and Crichton ends up paying for his education so that he can go to seminary. He ends up buying him a car. Damara sues him. Damara sues him again. Damara does all sorts of terrible things. Crichton gives him recommendations, sets him up in all sorts of straight jobs. Damara doesn't go straight. Damara ends up betraying him time and time again. He didn't go straight his entire life. And yet Crichton keeps believing in him and keeps vouching for him and keeps saying, no, no, he's actually a really good guy. And if you look at the story he wrote, he glosses over a lot of the really nasty things that Damara did. I think he really was taken in. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
we talked about cognitive dissonance of people who can't believe that they've been conned and don't want to admit to it. And I, I guess you've already touched on this a little bit because we talked about the dark triad and narcissism and stuff. But like the opposite of that is that, you know, how do the con artists convince themselves that they're that they're not doing anything wrong, that the people deserve this. You know, they're also incredibly good at rationalization. So let's dismiss the psychopaths for a second because psychopaths don't need to convince themselves of anything because they already don't feel any empathy for them. You know, the people are just, um, they're just victims. They're not even victims because victims implies some sort of victimhood. It implies humanity. They are marks. I mean, look at the language they use. A mark, you know, it's a target. It's not a human. So for psychopaths, that's the way, there's no rationalization needed. But for everyone else, I think that they're incredibly good at dismissing what they're doing and saying, you know what, I'm actually just making the world a better place. What I'm doing is not bad at all because that's the way they live with themselves. They convince themselves that they're just doing a service, almost a public service. I had a pretty funny encounter, a radio encounter, when I was on a show a few weeks ago with um, a man in his 70s who had been a con artist and had just written a book, he's now retired, about it. And the host had had us both on. And this guy, he spent his career fixing gambling games. So he would basically play crooked games all over the world. And he's talking and then I'm talking and saying something about con artists. And he says, you know, I totally agree with you, but I'm not a con artist. And there's a pause on my side because I think, well, where is this going? And he says, you know, I'm just a professional gambler. I'm thinking, well, sir, you're not a professional gambler. Professional gamblers don't cheat. You fixed games. You're a con artist. And then he goes on. He says, you know, I'm really a good person. I never. And he has this whole rationalization about how he thinks of himself. And I think that's incredibly common. I mean, they think if you were stupid enough or if if you were somehow deceived by me, then you deserved it. And if I was able to do that, then I earned it. It's my living. And that is the way I am. And most of them say that they're good people. It's quite interesting when you think about it. They ruin lives. A lot of times they drive people just absolutely crazy. Um, They drive them just to the end of their rope. And yet they still are able to say that deep down they're a very good-hearted person. And to emphasize how bad that is, I mean, if you look at somebody like, you know, like James Randi or Houdini was particularly into this as well. And in fact, you know, I I know a few magicians and they're all horrified at the idea that, you know, they've all had a go at pretending to be, to do cold reading and stuff. And it, it horrifies them and haunts them that people actually do, even when you say this is a trick, people will still say, oh, yeah, but you probably have got some sort of powers. Yeah, absolutely. So Houdini used to do mentalism tricks because he would say, you know, I'm a magician. Everyone knows I'm a magician. Then he realized that it doesn't matter that people know he's a magician. They still, at the end of the day, say, but there's still something to it, isn't it? Because the will to believe is so strong that people just will refuse to let it go completely. They will rather think that Houdini is lying to them. In fact, Arthur Conan Doyle, who used to be Houdini's close friend, and then they had a big falling out over psychics and spiritualism, because Houdini, after he stopped being a mentalist, 
because he thought it was just unconscionable, he devoted the rest of his career to trying to bring down psychics and mediums. He offered a huge prize to anyone who could prove genuine ability, which is the same thing that Randy does today, um, and no one has ever claimed it. But Conan Doyle thought that Houdini had psychic powers, that he was able to do some of his tricks because he actually had some of that spiritual strength and that he just wasn't aware of it himself. Can you imagine the levels of kind of self-deceit and rationalization that it takes when someone says, no, this is bogus, I don't believe in it, I'm going to invest my career with proving it false, and you say, aha, see, that's proof that you're a spiritualist yourself. Did you speak to any other former, or not even former, contemporary con artists while you were researching the book, and how was that? Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to dozens of them, and that was actually a little bit frightening um, because you find out that they're all remarkably charming and charismatic and nice, and they don't seem like bad people. And the more you talk to them, the more you convinced you become. You start listening to their logic, and you start thinking, oh, well, I see why he did that. Oh, well, that makes a little bit of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, he's not that bad. And you catch yourself actually falling for their lines. And that's a very scary feeling, because I knew these were con artists. It's not like I was going in blind. And yet they really charm you. You know, a lot of them they did a lot of research on me before we spoke so they will have read my articles some of them will quote me back to me that's really flattering i say you know you're what a wonderful person you are you enjoy and appreciate my writing of course you're how discerning of you and it's just it's a very kind of chilling thing to see that you even knowing that this is a con artist are falling for their charm and then I stopped talking to them I realized you know what I'm misrepresenting them I'm glamorizing them in the book because they're actually infiltrating they are setting their agenda which is I think exactly what happened to Robert Crichton when he was writing the biography of Damara um, he was too charmed he stopped being objective he stopped being an objective journalist he could no longer really see or chronicle what was going on and I think think that that would have happened to me had I not drawn back when I did. That said, I still think I'm guilty of glamorizing them to a certain extent. It's really hard to avoid. Well, they're incredibly skilled people. I mean, it seems like difficult to avoid admiring them as well in some level. I mean, there are, you know, a whole handful of great films that have been made about con artists and the long cons and stuff. And, you know, it's it's something that we're attracted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you you have to have a grudging admiration for them because if you look, if you think about it, you know, a lot of it is really. I mean, they are really artists. They're performing something that's remarkably skillful. They are getting you to do all sorts of things. And I mean, oftentimes they're not breaking any laws. I mean, you're giving them what they're asking for. And you watch that unrolling from the sidelines and you have to admire kind of the craftsmanship that goes into weaving these intricate stories. They're so good at what they do. They're such brilliant storytellers. They're beautifully eloquent. They're incredibly talented. And so even when they're ruining people's lives, you look at it and you think, there's a certain artistry to what you do. I mean, if someone is a craftsman, if someone is truly good at anything, you have to admire them. And con artists are almost by definition, otherwise they'll be, you know, a bit little shuckster who you'll never uh, you'll never think twice about. But if you call someone a con artist, that almost by definition comes with a certain level of skill. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Maria Konnikova and we're talking about her latest book, which is The Confidence Game, The Psychology of the Con and Why We Fall for It Every Time. And Maria, in this last part, I want to look at some more examples of con artists. But before we do that, to sort of structure it, in the book, your chapters are named after certain elements of the of the con artist trade. And so I'm going to ask you a number of those to sort of explain roughly what they are, what it means, what the term means. And then we'll look at an example of a con artist more generally. So let's start with the put-up. What do we mean by that? The put-up is the first stage of the con, and it's all about psychological profiling. So con artists are beautiful, intuitive psychologists. They are very good at reading the cues that uh, you don't even know necessarily that you're letting off so that they can tell a lot about you very, very quickly. And so... In the put-up, you really look at the motivations, what makes someone tick, you know, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are your hopes, what are your dreams, and in some ways, this is the most important part of the con, because you have to profile someone correctly in order to know how to con them, what story you're going to tell them, how you're going to get them to do what you want to do. That's all about figuring out what their particular buttons are. You mentioned earlier psychics and cold reading. I mean, this is what they do. Basically, that's this is their entire con. They are so good at gleaning information from you without you are realizing that that's what's happening, that you think that they have some sort of telepathic insight into your future, into your character, where all they're doing is just reading signs incredibly, incredibly accurately in a way that we don't think that 
people are capable of doing just because we can't do it ourselves. And so let's talk about Sylvia Mitchell. <laughs> Sylvia Mitchell, um, oh, she uh, she is quite the character. She is luckily behind bars right now, but not for much longer, unfortunately. One of the first psychics, actually, in recent memory to actually be convicted under New York law. She was able to dupe people into all sorts of crazy things. So I talk about this woman, Deborah Saulfield, who, smart woman, um, was at a really bad, talk about emotional vulnerability, so at a really bad low point in her life, um, had lost two jobs, her boyfriend. All this happened at once, and she just was completely, you know, she was really devastated, and she decided to go see a psychic at this very uh, infamous, shall I say, New York psychic, Xenia, which is kind of a very prominent place. And Sylvia Mitchell ended up convincing her that she was, in the past life, she was an Egyptian princess who had too strong of an attachment to money. And so in order to get over this so that all of her problems would be resolved, she needed to give her a check for, I think, $27,000. And Mitchell promised she would never cash this check. Of course, she cashed it right away. Fast forward, you know, to about 2008, um, where she realizes that none of this money is coming back by she, I mean, Southfield. And the whole story starts kind of gaining momentum after she hires a private investigator because Mitchell's refusing to give her back this money. And it ends up that Mitchell convinced a Wall Street banker, also female, to give her over $100,000 over a number of years. I mean, all of these people ended up falling for her charms. And these are not stupid people. I can't stress that enough because people hear this and they say, okay, who in their right mind would believe that they were a princess in their past life? And when I talked to Salfield, she says, well, I didn't actually believe that per se, but I really thought she could help me. So these people are people like you and me, well-educated, not dishonest at all, just at a vulnerable spot. And Mitchell is very, very good at telling them what they want to hear and at getting them to give her more and more money. And you went for a reading yourself in the book. <laughs> I did indeed. I wanted, hey, I wanted to experience what was happening. And it, it was quite funny. So I went for a tarot reading and I found myself listening to what my reader was saying and mine happened to be male and kind of nodding along because what you see yourself doing is you put yourself, everything that he was saying was pretty vague, but right away you kind of insert yourself into that situation and it's vague enough that it applies and you say, oh, you know, that's actually, that's pretty good insight. And you see him getting information from me. He'll say things like, oh, you're not from New York, are you? And I could say, actually, yes, I am. And he would say, oh, I thought so. I could say, oh, no, I'm not, which is what I happened to say. And he says, oh, I'm not either. And starts talking about, you know, what New York is like to live in when you're not born there. So all of these sorts of questions elicit a lot of information about you and make the person seem quite intuitive because you can really, it doesn't matter what the answer is, you can still turn it around so that it seems like this person kind of understands you and where you're coming from. So I walked out of this, obviously knowing the whole thing was a total scam, but thinking, you know, he's he's a pretty insightful guy. I mean, I know he's not psychic, but he's pretty insightful. And you talk to a lot of people who still go see psychics, 
And I've gotten into a number of arguments with people who say, well, not all psychics are charlatans. I mean, most are, yes, but there's still something to it. There are still real ones out there. And I say, no, no, they're not. If there were, you know, we'd know about it. There are all these prizes that have never been claimed, all this stuff that has never, no one's ever proven it. As far as we know, they don't exist. And they say, you know what, I totally agree with you, except my psychic is special. My psychic is the real deal. And if everyone's psychic were the real deal, well, then now we see why everyone falls for psychics. So we've done a psychological profiling in the put-up, and now we move on to the play. So what is the play? The play is when you really create kind of trust and empathy and rapport with your object, with your mark. And so this is when you really, you stop being a stranger and you become a friend. You become someone who's likable. You become someone who's relatable. You become someone who's trustworthy. And a lot of these things, they can be faked so easily if you use the put up to its full extent. You know, right away, you know what that person likes, what the person dislikes, kind of, you know so much about them. So then it just becomes a matter of faking similar interests similar backgrounds, even similar looks, if you know the types of outfits they like. People are really drawn to things that are similar and familiar. Those two elements are very important in establishing trust and liking, because if something is familiar, you like it more. If someone is similar to you, you like them more. And con artists at this point, they want you to like them so that you trust them, because when we like, we trust. And that's what the play is all about. Can you really build that emotional rapport, that empathetic connection so that the person is no longer objective, so that they're trusting you, so that they're drawn into your sphere of influence? So give us an example of somebody doing this. Sure. There's a very good example of a young woman who appeared one day in Ireland and she just was completely lost, um, no, didn't speak a word of English. No one knew where she came from. She looked like she was a teenager, barely a teenager, just this tiny thing, clearly in a lot of distress. And she was taken to the Garda station, and people tried to figure out who she was, and they couldn't make any headway. Then suddenly she started drawing. She started making pictures. And all of a sudden, it became very clear that she had escaped from sex traffickers, that she was probably Eastern European, because that's where a lot of victims of sex trafficking come from, and that she had escaped this tremendous ordeal, but she was still very psychologically devastated, and that's why she wasn't communicating. That's why she couldn't talk. That's why all of these terrible things were happening. And so then they said, well, we need to help this girl. And they followed up all these leads. We're talking hundreds of man hours and hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're trying to figure out who this woman is. They can't, so then they finally release her photograph. And that's when they find out that she is not a victim of sex trafficking. She speaks fluent English. She's Australian. Her name is Samantha as a party, and she's done this before. She is a woman who, she's in her 20s, a woman, not a teenager, who gets a rush out of fooling people into thinking that she's a victim. So she fooled the 
government of Australia, Ireland. After Ireland, she went on to Canada, and she'd never been sentenced because she'd never actually served any jail time because people always feel bad for her and think that she's a good person. She was just such an expert. And actually, let me let me rephrase that and put it into the present tense because I am willing to bet anything that we haven't seen the last of her. She is such an expert emotional manipulator. And people have asked me, you know, why does she do it? She's obviously not getting any money out of it. It seems like she's like there's something wrong with her. Well, she's been immensely evaluated. She's gotten clean mental bills of health every single time. And so I think that for her, it's what it's about for most con artists, which is power. I mean, think of the sense of control and power. You have an entire government looking for who you are. You're the center of everyone's attention. That is a huge rush for someone like that. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. I want to move on to the the next section, which is the rope and a young man that you talk about in that chapter that goes under numerous names. Um, But first of all, again, tell us what you mean by the rope. Yes, the rope is basically when you start actually employing persuasion. So now we've got an emotional connection, we've established trust. So now you lay out the pitch in a logical way and there are lots of techniques that you can use in order to accomplish this. Um, And these are techniques that you'll see in a lot of business school textbooks as techniques of influence. You know, how do you get someone to respond to your email? How do you get someone to lend you money? So these are a lot of techniques that cross over into both worlds. So for instance, there's this young man in England who has been a member of various aristocratic families, um, British, Monaco, Prussian. I mean, this guy, I don't know if there's an aristocracy to which he hasn't belonged. And he ends up being able to get money and all sorts of perks and privileges from people simply by being an aristocrat. And that is a wonderful technique of the rope because people want to, first of all, be close to aristocracy. And secondly, they don't want to question an aristocrat. Suffice it to say, this guy, Matthew Brown, is not an aristocrat, never has been. But No one ever questioned him to the point where he got credit cards under his name, under a fake name. He was able to, and this is the most recent escapade, at a charity auction, he gave a fake check, and they don't usually let you get away with the merchandise if you don't pay with cash, but he convinced this woman who was actually running the auction to let him get this merchandise, which was a pig, a statue of a pig, because she felt really guilty. He'd used another technique of the rope, which is the door in the face. When someone's mean to you for some reason, then they want to be nice to you after because they feel guilty. And she snubbed him a little bit because he was being a little obsequious. And she really was an aristocrat. Um, She was a marchioness and something about him rubbed her the wrong way. And so she snubbed his invitation to go visit him in Monaco. And then she felt really guilty. So basically she let him sweet talk her into walking out with this pig. Bad check, no money, pig is missing. He's at large and he keeps doing this and getting away with it because he uses those types of techniques and his credentials, which are all fake, but nobody wants to question it. It's a gentleman's code. It works very well in England. Just one other, well, a couple of a couple of different cons, actually, because I want to talk about art fraud. There's a couple of stories in the book that sort of come under separate sections, but we'll, we'll, let's talk about them together. First of all, there's a guy called 
Ken Perenni, who sort of takes advantage of this nascent interest in 19th century American art. He basically creates an art market for Butterworth, who's an actual painter, but he manages to convince people that this guy is a master and that they really need to own his art. And then he starts creating paintings to go into that market. So he actually ends up painting a lot of Butterworths that start gracing the cover of auction catalogs, Christie's, Sotheby's. So not only has he created the market, but now he's selling his own paintings. Um, he eventually, it catches up to him. There are too, a few too many Butterworths on the market. So then he goes to England and does the same thing with other types of paintings. Um, he does a lot of those sports paintings and naval paintings that aren't particularly noteworthy, but they still fetch a pretty pretty good amount of cash. And then he goes back to the United States and he he keeps doing this over and over until the FBI gets on his trail. And somehow, and I actually have no idea why he has his own theory, but I, I would take it with a huge grain of salt. They end up dropping the case against him. So these days he lives in Florida and he does legitimate forgeries. So he still does the exact same thing, except he doesn't sign them. Although there's a small part of me that thinks that he might still be doing forgeries on the side because he just seems so gleeful about it. He says, yep, I fooled them. I am better. I'm such a great painter. And, you know, if they fell for it, if they bought my painting, then sucks to be them. They don't deserve the real thing. And then there's later on, there's the abstract expressionist forger. So this is the Chinese forger. He basically, this is one of the largest art frauds in recent history um, in 20th century art. And what ended up happening was that over a decade, all of these beautiful abstract expressionist paintings made their way to the Nodler Gallery, which was the oldest gallery in Manhattan. And you'll note the past tense, the Nodler Gallery is now defunct as a direct result of this. And this woman would bring these paintings from a private collection. No one knew who the collector was, but that's not terribly rare in the art world. A lot of people want privacy and a lot of people are anonymous. And so, you know, all of this actually was kind of plausible, especially because the experts thought the art was so beautiful. And as it turns out, as we started finding out in 2008, and for real found out a few years ago when she confessed, all of these were fakes. So the gallery, the director of the gallery, everyone had been taken in by her story and by these artworks. And they were really painted by this guy in Queens who got a few thousand dollars, as he says, per painting. He very quickly left for China. The United States does not have an extradition order with China. And so that was that. And he, I don't think, is coming back. However, Glafira Rosales, who's the woman who was the quote-unquote dealer um, who knew Mr. X, she's confessed and she is awaiting her charging. Um, the trial has not yet happened. And the Bergantinos brothers, they were the final link. They were kind of the masterminds of this whole thing. One of them has just, it's now clear that he is going to be extradited from Spain. Um, and so we can probably expect to see charges there in the next year or so. Now, there's always been con artists, and a lot of these great stories that we've been telling over the course of this interview are, are historical stories. 
But now, you know, we live in a world of the internet and everybody's on social media. I mean, it's just an absolute bonanza for con artists now, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it's made it so much easier for people to both con and to be conned. So on the being conned part, we share so much information on social media that it just becomes child's play to do the put-up and to try to figure out what makes us tick um, and what are the kind of things that actually really motivate us, what we like, what we don't like. The put-up becomes so easy because we're giving away all of that information. We're also telling people if we're having major life changes. I mean, we post, I've just gotten married. I've just gotten a new job. I, you know, someone just died. Post all of this information. And so it's just so easy for con artists to track us and to use it against us. On the other hand, someone like Matthew Brown, that's the aristocratic con artist we were talking about a little while ago, he's able to use social media in order to really bolster his case so that he seems more legitimate. So he creates profiles for himself and we trust him because look, he has all these profiles. He was even able to edit Wikipedia pages to insert himself into lineages. And it takes a while for the editors to figure out that something is wrong. And so when you Google him, oh, it's on Wikipedia, it must be true. And so I think it on both ends, it makes conning far, far simpler. Just one final question then to finish off. In simple terms, what can we do to make it less likely that we'll be conned? Well, I think the absolute most important thing is to realize that we actually can be conned. Just because I think knowing that we're vulnerable and knowing that we can't spot deception, that we're not going to see con artists coming, is actually quite empowering because it gets us out of that false sense of calm and invulnerability, which would then in turn make us potentially question things. So instead of saying, oh, you know, you're definitely not lying because I don't think you're lying, we're going to say, well, I don't think you're lying, but let me check anyway. You know, that old journalistic dictum of trust but verify is something that we can re- really, I think, relate to when it comes to protecting ourselves from the con. And then the second thing that I would say, which is kind of a a practical bit of advice, is learning an exercise in seeing yourself in the third person. We're very rational about other people. It's just when it comes to ourselves that we stop seeing the world for what it is. So I would suggest that when something happens, something wonderful happens or something terrible happens and we really want to help someone out, that we actually step out of our skins and say, okay, let's pretend that this happened to the guy who works in the cubicle next to me or my next door neighbor or whatever it is. And he just shared this story with me. What would I tell him? Would I say, oh, I'm so happy for you. This is amazing. You won the lottery. How great. Or would I say, you won the lottery? Are you sure? You know, how do you know? Maybe this is a con. And if it's the latter, then maybe even if we don't want to believe it, we should be questioning it in our own case too, which nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to question good luck. I've been talking to Maria Konnikova and we've been talking about the confidence game, the psychology of the con and why we fall for it every time. It's out now from Canongate Books. Maria, thanks so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 